0: Welcome to Ramble City. Why that went wrong. And sometimes it'll be me and I'll be the first to end up say, sorry, I got that wrong. Don't worry, we'll fix it tomorrow. Yeah. I, I was unclear. I forgot where one was. My bad. Pretty, well, it's happened, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> strange enough, but you can get lost, but um, which is ridiculous. Because you know what else has a conductor got to do the oh, yeah, the but no where
1: I mean, we're not talking about that you're conducting. Mary had a little lamb. No.
0: You know what I mean? Like it's like I have like turned like ten pages by mistake and gone. My God, where? Am I, I, I remember, right remember it going here yes, so quickly. <laughs> so that's that's very interesting. That's
1: all that unsaid activity that's going on in any school. Of Time for us to step into the world of classical music, to the world behind the baton. How does the conductor of an orchestra think about music and how do they merge those different pieces of the orchestral puzzle and combat yawning audiences, standing ovations to create programs of music performed in venues like the Sydney Opera House that are often just as revered as the composers' music they are playing? Today's ramble chat is with Guy Noble, one of Australia's most versatile conductors and musical entertainers. And he's led all of our major Australian orchestras with and without performers such as the Beach Boys, Ben Folds, Randy Newman, Clive James. He's cooked on stage with Maggie Beer and might be the only person to have ever sung the Ghostbusters theme live on stage accompanied by the Whitlams. And we speak in 2019, yes... Over two years ago, we're opposite each other on two soft grey couches in his house in Sydney. And we talk about some of both of our favourite conversations. Does historical art connect with today's community? Is music something only reserved for the elite or just for those that are best at doing it? But we begin with me posing a big, broad and let's be honest, kind of daft question. Guy Noble, what does music mean to you? I'm Bradley McCaw and this is Ramble City.
0: Welcome to Ramble City. Gosh, start with the easy question. Well, <laughs> it means so much because there's just so much of it. And it means different things at different times and different places. But um, I certainly can't imagine a world, let's say there was no music. I just can't imagine it. I can't imagine it was sucked off into space tomorrow. You know, what would we do? There'd be no dancing, there'd be no singing, there'd be no opera, no classical music, no orchestras, no string quartets, no rock bands, no musicals. It's just It would just be awful. It's, um, it's a vibration. It's a, um, it is a mood-altering, a completely legal mood-altering drug. Not all the time, but sometimes. And I know if I want to get myself into a good mood... I'll put on something. It doesn't have to be classical. It could be a bit of Motown or just something that you know has got the positive vibes and you can just drag yourself out of a sort of a foul temper. And the other way, if you really want to wallow in something and you feel a bit sort of miserable, you can send yourself even further, like 13 stories down um, by putting on something you know will, will, you know, trip the emotional wires and leave you in a place where you might want to be depending on your mood. It's very, music is very moody. Um, but yes, it's hard to sort of encapsulate that now that you're asking that question because it is such a big thing.
1: And sometimes it feels a bit airy-fairy to even question it, doesn't it? But I mean, thinking about it reminds us why it's so important to foster in different ways and in different capacities, don't you think?
0: Absolutely. And I think that's also, you know, like everything in the human world, we've got um, – lots of niches of things lots of niches you know this is the way it's meant to be done like around every single bit of human endeavor like you know like fly fishing or something and you've got people who have to buy all the latest rods and there's all the talk and there's the the lingo and there's the clubs and everyone discusses it you think god every single avenue of human endeavor has this sort of clubby aspect to like how we're meant to do it properly certainly music has that classical music has that A teacher will say no it has to be the vibrato has to be this and you have to have the finger right there no that's not the way we do it um and sometimes I think you have to get beyond that and just say well what what is its emotional content because that's the most important thing does it does it the drumming make you want to go to war um is it the sort of music that you know really gets you going in a concert hall um so I think I sometimes you think we need to look beyond all that that nonsense to get to what the actual emotional content is of what we're doing and why we're doing it as performers. Um, particularly, I mean, if I'm if I'm you know trying to construct a concert, and I I know on the stage when I've just got it wrong, you think, oh damn, that's oh, it's emotionally wrong. We're going we're going in the wrong direction. Like it's a, it's the ups and downs like a three-act structure of a film sometimes, you know, to get from the beginning to the end. And then once you've got there, you think, ah, now we're on the, the home straight. And from here on, well, I know the audiences is going to get, you know, get bigger and bigger and bigger. Sometimes, you know, things happen where we, we don't achieve that. Sorry, I'm just jumping around. My brain's jumping around all sorts of things. It happened That's the other right. day. We do this thing called Great Opera Hits at the Sydney Opera House for Opera Australia. So it's just me playing the piano. We have five singers from the company and we do it on the main stage, so in, in the big Joan Sutherland Theatre in the opera house and there's uh, on whatever set is left over from the show in the night before or maybe just a red drapes. And, um, you know, we, we've we got that down to a fine art to sort of ramp up the audience. Many of whom are tourists who just want to see something in the opera house. They get to sing along at the end. Simon King sings the wonderful and Dormer and that's just the best way, of, you know, as you know, lifting people up there, just go, yes. And at that point, we've just, there was a little fault in the lighting design and the, the warmth went out of the lighting in the, in the sort of the encore, the Brindisi. And and the house just fell out of the the whole thing. I mean, it was still good, but just that one little thing about lighting, when you got everyone to the right point, and yet we weren't light-wise at the right point. And, you know, I went and spoke to the director and the stage manager saying we've just got to fix that because, you know, we're doing everything we can to manipulate everyone to that moment where everyone's going, yes. And then the lighting drops out and you go, that just doesn't feel right. Like yeah. it's, it hasn't got the joy. So... Extra musical things can come into play as well in those sort of situations, but that's one of my primary um, primary functions, and I think I've always been very aware of the audience. Sometimes too aware of the audience. I respect those people who just don't give a rat's ass about the audience. Who just, you know, really, who just can. I mean, if you're doing a Mahler symphony that lasts for two hours, I mean, how can you assess how the audience is going?
1: You know, at bar hundred and. Da, 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 da. I'm pretty sure the guy in seat 63B wasn't digging it. Well, that's right. And I've seen,
0: I've seen, I remember when I was doing a broadcast from the other side of the Opera House on the Concert Hall, it was Sydney Symphony, David Robertson conducting and it was the final movement of Beethoven Five. Now, that's pretty fantastic music and it's like one of the archetypal big classical pieces. And there was the conductor's monitor, which I was looking at in the control room, you know, it was straight down through david robertson and with a fair patch of probably the a reserve seats behind him i think i wrote about this in a limelight and there were people who were yawning and sort of <laughs> looking disengaged and i just said oh my god like i was sitting on the edge of my seat in the control room thinking wow this is just so exciting and they were their faces were totally disengaged and i maybe internally they were having a good time but from the externals you know and at the absolute climax point one guy did just you know (laughs) it looked like a lion out on the on the Serengeti went, (laughs) and you would have appreciated this as a as a writer of you know musicals and as a composer and someone who's seen audiences react to what you do and you can sort of Feel the ennui. Yeah, we well you're
1: you together.
0: F- yeah, you can feel the ups and downs. You think, oh, geez, you know, is that is that working? I don't think necessarily you have to have everything, at, you know, it can't be at 99% the entire time. Mm. But if there's something that's not working and you've lost the audience and there's the energy's gone, you can feel the energy disappear. yeah. And then it comes back again yeah sometimes it's you just don't know why that's happened but if you're the writer of something you can think well what what's not working here is it is it direction is it lighting is it staging is it the performance or is it what I've written yeah. and which of those things can we change to try and make it better
1: mm. so when you because you work across so many uh, genres particularly too in music if we just looked at that part of your work do you feel yourself wear different hats when you go into different one or is it is it sort of the same sort of way of looking at them all or does you how you see your role changes to bring about what I think that it, needs? It
0: does change depending on what you're doing. Ultimately it's the same thing, which is to try and do whatever you're doing the best you possibly can. Sometimes I have the control over that, sometimes I don't. I mean if it's a concert where you're sort of a ring in conductor for a very pre-determined concert, like a a touring person like a Randy Newman or something, well, I don't have to worry about that because mm. those sorts of concerts, well, you know, the lights go down, the crowd goes wild, Randy walks out and you're, what, 90% there? Yeah. he yeah. only has to sort of sing and crack a few jokes and have some fun and, and that's a successful concert. Yeah. When people come in and they're not exactly knowing what's happening or all the responsibility lies with me either as a host or a conductor or as both or playing, yeah, sure, then that job is slightly different. It might be more about... I mean, even something like a concert where it's mic'd, I mean, that means I've lost all control over balance. I can mm. internally help balance the orchestra, but I can't push the faders up and down. So I have to trust that the person out the front mixing has got that in hand. And, you know, there are some fantastic people we work with who you do trust, yeah. but you don't have to worry about balance. And that's in a concert or one of the biggest things a conductor has to worry about just, you know, can we hear everything we need to hear? Um, and people play differently when they're on mic as well. They don't have to blast it out as much. So, so sometimes there are times yeah, where I'm completely sort of involved running the whole show, and other times you can sort of coast along a little bit, which is great. Yeah. And in terms of genre, I mean, you know, if I'm conducting James Morrison doing some jazz, well, I'm going to be looking after the orchestra, getting it together, and interacting with him and with the band. Is that sort of? Um, I think yes. Yeah, it's like a. It's like a music music interface that's what I am Um, (laughs) between the classical world the classical players and the jazz world or the rock world or the pop world or the ministry of sound world we did a tour recently and that's great fun too all ultimately the same the orchestra plays the same Mm. but there are certain you know they're not going to take certain things as seriously as they'll take a big piece of classical music where everything that they do is heard Mm. and they control control their own um, balance and their own volume in a concert hall where there's no other competition so yeah it's but music, you know, I, it isn't that different. Maybe, you know, I don't conduct differently. I don't really talk that differently, but it's just relating to different people, mm. you know, and how important they are down the front and what they need to be supported in as opposed to the orchestra and, you know, the, the balance of its importance in the concert. Yeah. So I think that's what it comes down to
1: getting back to the importance of music or how we think about music or music's place in society and that's such a broad thing to talk about but just when you were talking i remembered reading an article that you wrote about a young child that was doing uh auditioning for their school choir and they got put through the process of Mary Little little Lamb. Do you remember that article?
0: Yes. Yeah. And
1: and it was about the idea of the choir and that it is about, you know, everyone en masse coming together and that's the sound. It's about the joy that that sort mm. of brings. Mm. Do you think that as kind of things have evolved in society becomes more and more about, I guess, being the best? Do you think we're losing kind of the the group aspect of a lot of why, how music was exi- existing? Do you think that's being lost oh, or is yeah, it just being no, moved in a, to a different
0: place? No, I think you're right. I think it's like, you know, we are the professionals.
1: Yeah. We are the professionals, <laughs> my friend. It's funny, that was the original lyric and I changed it. That's so weird. <laughs> it
0: doesn't scan as well, does it? Yeah. Um, that's, no, that's actually very interesting because I was thinking of that the other day. Uh, I'll tell you where I was thinking about it. Um, it was up at the... Um, close to where we live here in Neutral Bay, is the Hayden, Hayden the, the Cremorne Orpheum, where every Friday night at 9pm they have a, a showing of The Room, the famous, you know, the words, the Citizen Kane of bad movies with Tommy Wiseau, and it's interactive. Yeah. So it's a bad film, but it's so bad that it's wonderful. It's, it's just grotesquely bad. Nothing makes any sense. But the joy of it is that it's like an old pantomime that the audience becomes much more involved and so yeah. they get to shout out things. And they're going, like, who the hell are you? <laughs> and, you know, panning, you know, in a, in a long pan across the Golden Gate Bridge and the, everyone's going, go, 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 <laughs> go, you know. <laughs> it is one of the funniest things I've been to. And it's funny because the audience is engaged and they're engaged. Um, I mean, you don't, you don't necessarily want that in a concert, heaven's sake, not all the time, but in terms of participation, yes, you do want, more participation you certainly want their audience participation in terms of their energy and i think sometimes shouting things out i, mean, I think australian audiences are very very well behaved yeah um and yet yeah, we don't we don't want the room situation we don't want someone you know towards the end of a beethoven condensing like go 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 <laughs> <laughs> that'd be ridiculous but in terms of participation like in a big choir or something yeah there's so much room for that mm. and that uh i think there are people who do just want to sit and listen to superb professionals do what they do um and i think there are other people who want to be much more involved yeah and if you look at a pop concert uh you know a really big sort of stadium arena style pop concert that's much more interactive people sing along yeah when they hear their favorite tune the artists you know obviously just you know drop out a few times and hand the mic and you sing this line for me and they're much more engaged they can move physically mm-hmm. so I think sometimes, you know, the worst thing is that we ask people to go into a big venue, sit very still, make no noise whatsoever, and then at the end we ask them to to applaud. Yeah. One of the best things, you know, I've been doing it for years now in Australia all over the place are so these last night of the proms concerts and, you know, based on the original English one, but in Australia skewed towards more Anglophile music. So it's, you know, not necessarily just generalised classical music and finishing with all the Jerusalem and the land of hope and glory. And you know, it's that stuff's not jingoistic and nor is it in London. It's a it's a musical party. Yeah. And the people in Australia love that. They might be ex brits and they all bring their flags and carry on. But the fact that they get to interact um, towards the end of the concert that's when it erupts yeah. when they get to the sea the sea songs the fantasia and they, they, they you know da 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 bum bum ba da 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 bum and it gets faster and faster and faster and then that's when that's when the concert actually begins everything else before that is just a preamble and that's why that's so successful because the audience knows what their role is. They yeah. know how to participate. They can clap. They can stamp. Then they get to sing. Then they get to whoop. And I think that's why it's so good because they feel part of it. Mm. And they, um, that's what we want out mm. of um, a concert of that nature. And other times you do just want to sit there and let it all happen over you and not to be participating in the middle of some very important Mahler symphony or something. In fact, there was once... 1999, funnily enough, we did a New Year's Eve concert going into 2000 and it was at the Opera House. It was a scratch band. It was a Sondheim um, cabaret sort of, well, like Side by Side, but a different one. It was was called You're Going to Love Tomorrow, so a selection of Sondheim songs. They obviously chose that because of the title. Great title for Mm. a New Year's Eve concert, but actually some of the music was really, you know, very... Clever and quite, of its, you know, in that Sondheimian way. Things like, you know, someone like a someone in a tree from Pacific Overtures, which yeah. I think still it stuck with me for weeks afterwards. I thought it was just genius that piece. Yeah. But it was a little bit like, oh my god, what's the audience? It's the only time. So we go up to the side of the stage. The only time we ever actually thought, oh my god, they're going to kill us, because <laughs> 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 we're the, the audience was doing Mexican waves. They were in there. They were. Hyped up to buggery. They were so, and of course, they were going to get the interval and see the fireworks on the forecourt and everything else. Wow. And and the first thing, and I said to Judy, can I said, oh my God, yes, they're going to kill us. Because <laughs> the first thing we had to do was going, Gods at the theatre smile on us. You know, and they're all going, like, What's this? <laughs> but then <laughs> gradually, Gradually, the the party began, you know, yeah. and they they warmed into it. But mm. it was the only time you almost felt that you needed to spray some sort of foam to calm <laughs> everyone down before the concert had actually started. That's yeah. a rare occurrence, and yeah, usually yeah. there are times and certain audiences. I remember once in Hobart, this audience so sleepy. It was a cold night in Hobart, and everyone was just so sleepy, and I got really angry with them because I just thought, "Come on, you're part of this.
1: Yeah. We can't Can drag we, you all the way. No, we can't.
0: We can't do it all." Like, and of course, I think I. I think I stupidly because I was hosting as well I got them I got them up to do some aerobics, and that, that course then they sat down, then they were both bored and angry yes. which, is,
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is even worse and needing to stretch <laughs> that's, right.
0: that's right it was a stupid thing to do, but I just thought, well, come on, yeah, come on, maybe but even anger would be better I mean yeah than, than, at least it's something than feeling nothing coming back at all yeah you know? and sometimes that's to do with age I mean an older audience. You know, I've played to lots of older audiences, and they're wonderful, but they don't have the same whoopy sort of energy. Yeah, uh, and you know, they can you can finish on an absolute high, and it's the best ever final chord. It's great music, and it will be that sort of oh, that's lovely, thank dear. Thank you.
1: They just don't well, I have really enjoyed it.
0: Uh, exactly, in the only way that they can. Yeah, but it's not that sort of hyped up thing. So yeah, it's um, I think the participation angle is very important, and. I think in that that article I was sort of talking about the fact that, you know, this person was, you know, he wasn't allowed to go into the choir because yeah. it, he just wasn't quite good enough at that, that age. I'm sorry, um, it's not really about that. It's mm. about everyone being involved in music because if we don't encourage younger people at that age to have a, a connection with vocal music and through that to orchestral music and everything else, well, you know, there'll be a whole generation that doesn't know anything about it, has had no Um, they haven't been exposed to it and how are they meant to get to like it if they haven't heard it? They might hear it through one of the usual ways, which has been through, you know, television or film where some pre-existing classical piece is used and then they go, oh, what's that? I want to find out about it. And they can learn from it through that way. But given music education is pretty woeful in this country and seems to be getting worse. Yeah. Not everywhere. There are some wonderful schools obviously, but across the board it's as if it's not seen to be important. Yeah. That it's just the STEM subjects that are the ones that everyone has to know about. Well, mm. there's more to life than just that. Yeah.
1: but what, what is that transaction to you do you think what is what does that mean giving something of yourself and how do you give something of yourself in in music well it's a funny thing when you i
0: can say looking from a conductor's point of view first which is okay. what i mostly do that is an, that is an unusual thing because how do you because you don't make any noise yeah you are you know you are trying to help other people make the sounds together to ultimately Fire you know it sort of goes you go that direction to the to the orchestra and then it fires back over your head out into the audience, so it's sort of a weird sort of reflective thing it's and people are still looking at you a lot too well that's true, and that's a very important part of it um it's because you are semaphoring all sorts of things, and sometimes mm. I, I I find that uncomfortable i'd rather be. Like in a little sort of bird watching hide, you know, one of those little canvas tents. Yeah. And certain times you could put your your arms out and really be involved in the music, but there mm. are other times that you just need to disappear. Yeah. And you see that in the great conductors who just sometimes don't do anything. you know, there's a Baron Boyne will just be standing there and he'll sort of flick <laughs> a finger and like you know you know what you're doing. Well, when you're working with the Vienna Philharmonic, the Berlin Philharmonic, I mean those orchestras don't need a lot of help yeah. at all times, but they still need to be cajoled into something bigger and better than they might have come up with themselves yeah so that is an interesting thing you Well, know, what exactly is it you know certainly in terms of rehearsal um giving of yourself trying to make put people at ease i think so that they can do the best that they possibly can because no one i don't work well under real pressure mm. up to a certain point but then when it gets higher than that you just start to make mistakes and, and second guess yourself and you go into that awful yeah you know a hamster wheel of despair in the brain that just goes round and round, saying, "I'm going to muck it up. I'm going to muck. Oh, I mucked it up. You know, yeah. or I, you lose the energy to be adventurous. I mean, the best times I think as a performer in anything you do is when you just don't care. You, you're enjoying it. You're right in the moment. You, you've even forgotten you're performing. Yeah. And it's you know, that happens. You know, it doesn't happen all that often, but when it does, I think it's a magical feeling because you yeah. think, Oh, wow, look at all that. I wasn't even sort of here. Yeah. But you're like this vessel that just sort of does what it has to do. Through it's conduit years. or something. Yeah. As a pianist, um, the same thing. You know, you just try and be, if I'm accompanying people or playing, I rarely do solo stuff, but accompanying, you know, try to be really supportive and warm and and, and full so there's a lot of, you know, attention going into it and a lot of energy mm. to support a singer or whoever you're accompanying. And certainly the other thing that I have is that sort of hosting part of it, that sort of being on stage and talking, and that's really important because it breaks the barrier and it... Um, it you can if a concert is especially if it's got lots of smaller pieces if it's sort of like a an ongoing meal then then that role is to sort of be like a bit of a palate cleanser and maybe to discharge some of the tension from what's happened or ramp the tension up before the next piece. but I think audiences like that because they sort of they sort of like to know what's going on, and they certainly in terms of standing in front of orchestras, they love to know what the orchestra players are thinking they like to hear from them they like to um, be aware of important moments that are coming up which you can play or demonstrate or someone's talking about it and then they hear it in the context of the piece and they go, oh, yeah, now I understand, how yeah. that fits together. So those things are all all really important. But, you know, how do you... That communication is such a bizarre thing. Obviously, the music itself gives you the template of the communication and if it's a great piece of music, you don't really have to do too much. You, you don't have to over-egg the omelette. It, <laughs> it, it sort of comes out of itself. And you just have to help it be there. Mm. But there are amazing moments where people just take take that extra bit of time or do something. They have such a sort of a stage presence. I'm thinking of someone like Sumi Jo. I work with an amazing coloratura soprano, Korean soprano. We, we toured last year. And it was such a revelation. She almost ruined me on other singers because her super stage presence, slightly mad,
1: mm.
0: she's slightly mad, but she just commands where she stands on a stage, and she knows how she's going to do it. She's done it many times before, mm. and the audiences love that because they feel really comfortable, like, oh, we, we're in the hands of someone who knows what to do, rather than someone who hasn't quite had that experience and feels very tense and then the audience gets a bit tense as well. Yeah. So there's unwritten, unwritten communications are fascinating between audiences and whoever's on stage, and I love... And I, I, for me is there are some times that you can sit in an audience and then you're not you really just not quite into it and then something will happen, whatever it is, and you'll just lean in.
1: Mm.
0: And the, it's like the magic is beginning. But what is that precisely? I don't know. That's the mystery of it all. But when it happens, you know it, because you you might be thinking, sitting there, oh well I was what did I have for dinner yesterday? Oh, I didn't buy the chops, I'm gonna have no, we're gonna have lamb ribs. <laughs> what am I gonna do with that? And then suddenly something happens and you're totally engrossed mm. in the moment so that, that whatever's happening, the, the communication's bang on with you and the performer. Mm-hmm. And whether that happens right across the whole audience at the same time, I don't know either. There mm-hmm. might be pockets of it or certain people who are totally glued to it and other people like the Beethoven I spoke about before, going, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, It's, it's fascinating and that's why it's so interesting. Even in music theatre, even when you're doing exactly the same show, Day in, day out, totally different responses mm. from different audiences at different times because there's just a different group of human beings. And that's great because, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over again can be very tiring. But, you know, to, to think, oh, well, geez, that line got a huge laugh. Like why is that? Or, yeah. um, or that line didn't get a laugh or they didn't applaud as much there. You know, what is it? Are they in a bad mood? Did we do something wrong?
1: Yeah. Are yeah, they flat?
0: Are we, f- yeah. Are we flat? That's right. Or did the the sound guy not pump it up quite enough? Or was the air conditioning slightly wrong? Or
1: yeah. It's just it's fascinating.
0: Also ramping things up in the right direction. I remember years ago when they were doing The Producers and the show had got a bit slow because everyone was, interesting in terms of comedy, everyone was trying to find more and more gags. So the pace was sort of getting a bit slower and it meant that there were so many little gags that... When the big gag came, it didn't It didn't land because it'd be like doing high jump or long jump and you've got to get a run up. You've got to go and then into the air. And it was like I'm going to stop here, stop, stop again, stop. And then and you go, going to and it just doesn't get to that moment. So all that sort of stuff is very interesting. I love it when, you know, when I used to do more music theatre and directors, the ones who would just direct everything like dialogue, like music and just keep the pace, keep it going don't take so much time there yeah don't just go on and on and on get on with it come on come on we've got to get to here yeah and keep the pace moving because the audiences are often way ahead of you they're intelligent they
1: know what's going on so just just get on with it it often feels to me too sometimes and this is just my thinking of it whether it's like get to the place where it's a little out of control like you're, you're a little out of you're just at the top of yourself yes that's yeah. how I seem to friend. like if I, time I felt like I've lost myself in something, it's because I've kind of not tried to hold it too much and it's just out there a little bit and you sort of go, oh, this is where it's going tonight for whatever reason. That's right. And that's what's fantastic
0: because you're in the moment and then the audience will appreciate that, that yeah. you're in the moment as well. They know that, that something's happening, which is not necessarily always happening. Yeah. But how do you fake that then?
1: Um, or even get to that point. Or
0: even get to that point. Or how can you have... I mean, you can't do it every single time. You cannot do it. It's, I think it's physically impossible. I think it's to give the semblance that you're almost there at mm. that point.
1: And is maybe, that craft?
0: <laughs> I think it is. And maybe, you know, and I never try and say the same thing exactly the same way on the stage twice. I certainly never conduct anything exactly the same.
1: Mm.
0: And you, you just don't want to repeat yourself like that. It has to be... It has to be alive it can't be like in aspic or some mm. sort of museum exhibit this is this is the performance of beethoven's 7th symphony i've done it every single time Bip.
1: exactly play
0: but of course it never will be because you're playing with a whole group of different people who've got different sounds different different orchestras can do different things at different tempi i mean some can play a bit faster in this particular thing others can play faster there you might just decide i really want to go like 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 this fast just for the hell of it and then you realise nah, it's just not going to work because yeah. they're not committed to it or it's just or well, maybe I'm not committed to it that's the other thing or it's just not the room's wrong for it you Yeah. know to, I did a concert years ago up in Queensland it was the Queensland Symphony we are on tour and it it was a sort of a concert had it must have been film music or something and at some point it had the Barbara Daggio the famous Barbara Daggio in it and it's funny, we got to that point. And I think because, I don't know, I was certainly very tired. We'd been doing a lot of traveling. It'd been a hot day, stinking hot day. And I just thought, I just can't do that right now. Like, I just thought, just, I said to the audience, we're just going to skip over that for the moment. It just, it just doesn't feel like quite the right mood. You but, said that? Yeah. Just wow. don't feel that we're quite right to do this at the moment. So we just, we'll come back to that. And is I, that common? Like, No, that- I've never, I've rarely done that. Wow. But it just felt, no, nah, just doesn't feel right to do this. And sometimes in a concert, you might decide, actually, we're going to flip these two items. Yeah. That, I think we need to do this now and that. Yeah. But this on this particular occasion, I was like, I secretly hoped that we wouldn't do it at all. I hoped they'd forget. And we sort of... So once it was out of the way and once we went on and the concert was a long concert as well, so I was sort of thinking, God, let us make an edit. <laughs> let us get to the drinks earlier. Let us just... I think they've had enough. And then suddenly... Just towards the end when I was sort of wrapping up, this woman shouted out, What about the Baradagia? (laughs) And we had to do it. And it was fun. And because it happened then, and then the audience were all like, Yeah, Baradagia, we want it. And (laughs) And so that became a moment and became, it was perfect then because it was demanded. Uh, They wanted it and we thought, okay. The orchestra actually didn't want to play it either because it's hard. It's a long piece to play. Strings find it, you know, very tiring. They do it a lot and they get a bit like, oh, you know, we've got to do like Bolero and, oh, until we have to do this again. Yeah. So they were hoping we could just get rid of it as well. But when it happened, it was the perfect moment for it. So sometimes you just fluke those sorts of things. But I'd like to see more of that. I I'd, I'd love, you know, Sumi Jo once, I think it was in Sydney, she at the Angel Place, she, she went for a very, very high top note. She, she was a bit sick actually because she'd been touring around had barely got over jet lag before she was having to fly away. The whole country was, we did it in about a week. It was a lot of pressure. And she went to one of those beautiful sort of top soprano going from a big forte and that huge diminuendo into this tiny pia pia And she almost sort of got there and then it sort of cracked. And then she just she, she just stopped and she waved her hands in the air as if to say, stop, stop. She didn't say anything. She just waved her hands like she was some sort of policeman at an intersection. And then she just did it again and nailed it. And I just thought, yeah, that's it. That is just so cool to do that because it's like, no, that's not good enough for me or for you and I will do it again. And I guarantee you if she cracked it the second time, she would have done it until she got it right. And, of course, the end of the audience goes, wow. Yeah. Because she's acknowledged the difficulty on stage and she's gone for it and they appreciated that. And I learned a lot in her doing that, which is to sometimes just not worry so much about things like – Get it right. You, If you're up there, own the moment, you know, and make it feel like it's something happening which is not happening
1: every single minute. So audiences think, wow, this is exciting. Because yeah, there's it's almost like this persona that we feel like you adopt as you sort of come up the, 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 you know, it's always like fake it till you make it, let's say, and you're coming up the ranks through your career and, you know, it's whatever, and you get to a point and it's like what you what you're sort of projecting is, Every time, all the time. Don't you worry, I got this. Mm-hmm. But for someone of that stature to then, you know, and that skill level to go, no, you know. Yes. That's a gimme, let's go again. That's that, right. That, it's that sort of. Like everyone
0: knows I've just mucked it up. Yeah. So it's it's better to, to acknowledge it yeah. and then do something about it rather than pretend it never happened. And it makes and them more human in a way too. Much more human. Much more human. And I think it's
1: interesting, you know,
0: I read a lot of biographies and, I love, you know, reading books that people have written or hearing their podcasts, talk, talking about their careers. And what do they talk about? They don't talk about their greatest successes. They talk actually about their greatest failures, the moments where it didn't go right. And those have become funny with the passage of time. But as John Cleese once said, you know, fast is what happens to you on, the, on your worst day of your life because when you're when you're in the middle of a farce when it's all falling apart it's not fun (laughs) unless you can actually and I've started to do that more over the years certainly in orchestral terms where you can't kill anyone and there's nothing hugely at stake really but you can actually laugh like you can get the giggles when things go wrong because it's going to be better than glaring I've seen poor players who've had you know they've got to nail hideously difficult bits of music and nasty passages and conductors will glare at them as if as if we don't all know that <laughs> I, like you know what do you need what do you need to shoot a flare-up say i made a mistake well of course you know i made a mistake you're meant to be the conductor yeah. so don't glare at me yeah just the flag comes up in the middle of the surrender yeah, yeah yeah like i you know no player ever does anything on purpose like that no one tries to sabotage a performance and of course it'll be their own head on the chopping block anyway so i mean that's what i love when you when i don't particularly like rehearsals I I i I'm much more of a, let's just sort of let's sort of you know, get the the cake to a certain point in the oven, take it out, and then finish it off later on rather than attempt to get everything perfect because people will not do that when they're rehearsing. What is the point? Yeah. It's it's unnatural to put that amount of pressure when there's not an audience there. Mm. And you add an audience into a situation and immediately you've got an extra what? 30, 40% of like, whoa, okay, here we go. Yeah. And a lot of things, um, like a chiropractic adjustment, just just click. Mm. They come together because people are listening, and much more intense about what they're doing. But that amount of, of mental energy, if you could measure it, is enormous. In orchestras, what's going on? Any sort of performers on stages doing whatever they're doing. If you could go around with a meter, and you know you hear, <laughs> wow, wow, they're really they're like they're really into it. The brain. Clocking everything, understanding what's going on, what the other actors are doing, the other singers, the other players, you know how the audience is reacting, all sorts of other things mm. It's just amazing how they hold all of that in their heads and um, and so it's I know that you just you've got to leave things sometimes until the moment, you know, to prepare enough and then back away and and if certain little things happen in rehearsals, just say, no, don 't worry about that like I know why that went wrong, and sometimes it'll be me and I'll be the first to end up say, sorry, I got that wrong, don't worry, I'll fix it tomorrow.
1: Sometimes I, I, I feel that you know, the experience of a craftsperson, an artist, whatever word we want to use, all the different fields that they work in sort of, they, of course it shapes the way that they think about certain things and often if you've had a lot of experiences in other fields outside of music or, or, or theatre, you kind of look at music in a different way because you're not just thinking about what you have to do. Of course, you're thinking about the broader picture. You're thinking about, well, I've done that job and so I know that this is what they're thinking about and then I've sat in an audience and then I've run a theatre or then I've, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Do you think that, you know, the work that you've done, you know, thinking about things and writing about things but then also being a presenter and being a host and being someone that, that communicates... Has that changed the way you look at these moments and the way you prepare for that as opposed to someone that just looks at the dots and the music and
0: Absolutely. I think, you know, um, it's obviously just, you know, I've just had that in me and I've always wanted, been interested in that side of things. And I I like humour and I like the way you can use humour to, you know, make serious things seem more serious and then to release the tension and... Um, I like an audience that can laugh joyously and then, and then hear something very passionate as well mm. um, now that 's that 's very important to me and I think that know, yeah, everything you do everything you do has to inform everything else that you do and I was talking to um one of my a few of my colleagues at the at the opera company the other day and, and I made some comment about um Star Wars or Star Trek, I think Star Trek, I think I was talking about the Orville, Seth MacFarlane's Orville, which is an amazing series. It's so, so funny. It's like you know, funny Star Trek, very clever. And this singer said, oh, now Star Trek, hang on. Star Wars is the one with the big ship. Um, and Star Trek is the one where they're all on the ship together or something. I just thought, my God, how could you have no understanding of one of the, Biggest cultural references of the 21st century. Like, how could you do that? Like,
1: It wasn't a bad description descriptor of the two, but I know. I know what you're saying. I know.
0: And I don't think she was being, I don't think she was being joking about it. I thought she seriously did not mm. know. And that's fine. But I was thinking, it's not, that's not some little sort of side issue. I mean, yeah. it's a pretty big, you know, um, franchise of movies in both directions. And and it has a lot of lot of fun and a lot Almost of things. Almost forty years, whatever. Exactly. Like 30, exactly. 40 years. Exactly. It's not as if it finished twenty-five years ago and it's yeah. just like old memories. And I just thought you need to get your head out of the books, out of the out of the opera books and the opera arias, and see what's going on. Because opera was, you know, contemporary culture once mm. and I I just I I mean I don't know everything about everything but I have an inquiring mind I like to learn about stuff I like to hear about all sorts of areas I don't know about and I just thought that was so myopic it was like god really you need to get out more (laughs) because there's a whole world of fun out there which is not put down the bajini and walk away (laughs) that's right exactly it's exactly right it's like it's too much it's it's too engrossed and I, I think that's great but you know, what, are they, what does she do for a break? Just go away. And yeah. what other music do you listen to? I mean, I don't, I'm, I certainly don't have a broad range of music that a lot of people know absolutely everything. There isn't, you know, a huge range of music. But, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by all sorts of different music. And I think to be in one sphere, the people I feel really sorry for are like the Baroque specialists because I can't imagine. What would you do in your time? Well, what do you, I mean, I'm sure they listen to jazz and everything else. Sure. But, like, even in your performing life that you'd never get to play some scrunchy aim minor ninth chord, you know. Yeah. You, you, you'd just be constantly in straight G and straight D and occasionally in an added sixth. You'd have to love it. it. Well, of course they love it. and Yeah, they love it and it's great. But I just think, oh, God, I could not do that. I could not be so focused on one area to the exclusion of all others because um, I think, you know, I've always said I think there's, there's – you know, there's good music and there's bad music, but there's good and bad music in every genre. Yeah. I mean, there's so much bad classical music. They keep on dredging stuff up that's never been recorded. I wonder why. It's, <laughs> and it's been lost and forgotten. I wonder why. We were hoping. Because <laughs> it's shit. There's just terrible pieces of boring music, you know, they go on and on and you think, well, it's never finished. And it's like and the, the the great masters have survived because they've got something different to say. They surprise us. Yeah. And, you know, they do things that you think, oh, wow, that's just unbelievable to even think about doing that. But when someone does everything with a cookie-cutter symphony from the 1800s, think, oh, God, I can't, I couldn't sit through it. Just was. Is it.
1: Does it transport you to that time when you play that music? Do you think it, because it, it is uh antiquity in a way, isn't it? It is. It mm. is. And time is moving and, and it feels if you don't have a great understanding about music or if you haven't enjoyed music from, a, from a, at some point in your life, the way you look at classical music is probably not as wide as it needs to be to fully appreciate all the different parts of it, don't you think? Mm. You know, like if you do music at school and you have some knowledge of certain things or you get exposed to some violin and cello, you sort of really can pick apart little things and know what you're listening to. But if you're just like, you know, mm. Phyllis on the street, let's say, that just gets dragged to a symphony. It's, yes, do you I'm, kind
0: I'm, of get the feeling of it? Do you... I, I think that, you know, the more you know about it, the better you love it and the more you, you will love it. That's yeah. one of the... And it's, it doesn't go for a lot of other things. You know, you can hear a piece once, you go, oh, I'm not sure, and second time, you go, oh, okay. Yeah. Third, fourth time, fifth time, it grows on you. That's why, and that's why it's wonderful we have YouTube now because there's no... There's really no excuse. I mean, if you're going to go and see a concert with a piece you've never heard before, I don't think you should half the time. Just get it into your
1: mind. You're going to enjoy it much more. So So you think someone should should really get and know the ups and downs a little bit and really know what's coming? I think they should be,
0: yeah, because I think familiarity does not breed contempt when it comes to music. So the more they know about it and the more they start to read about it. So you... You know, you go down that rabbit hole on Wikipedia or something and you find out this, and, oh, that's what happened here. Oh, that relates to this. And then it becomes, you know, you you just go further and further into it and you can lose yourself. But I don't think, to go back to the first part of your question, I don't think that, you know, I can really put myself in the frame of someone who's in the 1800s who's playing this for the first time. And you try to. You try and look at it and say, well, why do we do it this way? Because it's the accepted way of doing it. There are certain parts of... um, like I remember a conductor at the opera years ago saying to me, you know, these Rossini ares that finish, you know, dum jam, dum 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 bum and they hold the high note and then go on. He said, that's ridiculous. He said, the high notes really always you come before that. You lose all the energy. There's yeah. nothing in the music. There was no, there is actually no performance history at the time of that happening. We sort of know that. And we knew it. Um... So that's, that's become a modern thing just because a singer's decided I want to sit there on a top note. And there's nothing worse than that because what I'm – they're just screaming for the hell of it. Yeah. Look at me. Look at me up here. <laughs> it's not like the Ness and Then which well, is, you which, want it. You want in it by set, Which is still written, Vincerell, and Really? Absolutely. There's no writ put in there. Because so in my head, I thought it went, Vincerell. No, that's not written at all. They, he probably thought that the A after the B was the the climax. Vincerò, vincerò, because it's it's got the bump, butter. Wow. But obviously somewhere along the line of tennis going, oh, I've got a good B. I can sit up here for an inch. <laughs> Circular breathing. <laughs> that's right. And post-Pavarotti now, everyone expect, expects it. This famous uh, Sempre Libra, the, the uh, La Traviata, when she goes up to a top E-flat, not written, maybe mm. a top um, B-flat, but it's not an E-flat. And then people who haven't got an E-flat feel they can't do it anymore. Even with Phantom, which has a top, well, sung E natural for Carlotta, she has to do that live. But the E flat that the Christine sings is on tape. And you've, I've done it, we've doctored a D into an E flat and it doesn't matter because at that pitch level, no one can tell. So you should never, ever say... When you're auditioning, a Christine, oh, she hasn't got an E-flat. Who cares? She, yeah. She's got a D. She's even got a C-sharp. That's fine. Yeah. Just, you know, just move it up. Science, thank you. And, you know, <laughs> fix it up a little bit and then it sounds fantastic. And yeah. all that stuff that's in the journey that's on, on tape anyway. Historically informed performance practice or something. Hip. You know, I, 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 I'm I not sure about that because I, sometimes you look at a piece of music and think, well, where, how is that? It's not written to be like that. That's just... That's just tradition. That's just we've always done it that way. But you can tell sometimes a composer is um, like in El and La Stella in Tosca, there's a, there's a pulsating accompaniment. And to have a pulsating offbeat accompaniment means there has to be a beat. So you can't take everything so slowly the beat disintegrates because yeah. then you're conducting everything in six and not in three and it becomes a mess. Yeah. So that sort of stuff really irritates me when you hear all these uh, Liberties taken, and you think, I don't think he ever, you know, that would be fantastic. You would go back in a time machine and hear the first performance and go, Oh my God, that's what it was meant to be like. Yeah, it'd be fascinating. Sure, if we're playing any- everything way too fast now. Everything's much faster than it used to be because people think, Well, fast is exciting. So let's just get faster and faster and faster. It's almost not playable. Um, yeah, all that sort of stuff is what a conductor has to think about. Probably the most important th- thing you have to think about. And there are certain pieces you think, yeah, as I said before, I want to go a bit faster. And then you listen to it you think, you know what, it sits right in the pocket here. Yeah. It feels really good. It's the, the way they play it, the articulation, it's groovy in that groove. Yeah. And if it's too fast or too slow, it's just like, it's just wrong. Picking a tempo which is too slow and it's always like some, like you're trying to send the piece into orbit, but it hasn't quite got enough altitude to stay in orbit and it just starts to fall back and you're constantly trying to keep it going, whereas it was like half a a, bet, a metronome mark ahead it's effortless it, in a sense effortless. it's yeah. like a spinning top it just goes oh here we are and, it, and the players play it yeah
1: it's
0: one of, that was one of the things I had to learn over time was certainly tempo and just that tempo that was just a fraction too slow was just death yeah and sometimes it's best to just put it out of its misery than the first few bars in a rehearsal just say like, whoa sorry too slow just got it wrong Let's do it again. Because all
1: the energy, you're right, like you have to put into something to keep it going, to keep it there. It's oh, just, it's, it's awesome. never ending no. and it's you that's having to. And the
0: orchestra's just winding back because yeah. they, know, they know that it's suffered
1: a death. I guess is it trying to recreate things in a certain way now takes a bit of the, the the presentness out of it and whatever the purpose is of the music for today, at this point in time, in this moment, here with these people. If we're always going, you know, way back to, to them mm. to try and recreate that, does it take away from actually what is the transaction going on right here between us and the people that are sitting there right now?
0: I agree. Yeah. And, you know, we, are, we live now. We don't live then. We, You know, we live in a time of rockets and, and iPhones. They had none of that. So what is speed to them? What is fast to them? As fast as a horse? And we're talking about as fast as a, as a Ferrari? I mean, it's, it, the sense of speed is so dif- different. Mm. Uh, and speed of life and speed of attention. You know, you think that our attention span probably has de- decreased a little bit. But then again, in, you know, the 18th century in opera, you know, it wasn't just about listening to the singers. In fact, half the time you couldn't hear them apparently because people were shouting and carrying on and it was a wow. social event. It was like a football match. And people are, you know, probably having it off on the boxes and there's people eating chicken legs and throwing things at people. It was a... They didn't care about the singing half the time. So... The fact that the opera went for four hours, probably that's fine. What else are we going to do? There's no yeah. televisions, no DVDs, you know. We can't really read books by candlelight. We'll go blind. We haven't got, you know, iPads. We haven't got Kindles. So let's go and sit the opera because at least we're all here together and having fun. So an opera could go for that long. And they probably wouldn't mind if someone sang, you know, the Dark Capo Aria and sang it again. And they shout and they want seven encores because they probably just don't want to go home. But now, you know, we're so time constrained and that's one of my major issues is a bit sort of time constrained. It came from working in radio for many years and so it's a great help because you can finish concerts absolutely on time. You can you can know how far you have to get to get to that point. Yeah. But sometimes you can be too aware of it and it's nice to be sometimes not aware of time yeah. and just float away and just be totally engrossed. So yeah, we're not the same people as the people who were listening to Mozart's first symphonies or you know, what Bach was writing at the in Leipzig, we're completely different people. And I think that you're right that if we're in a particular situation, you've got to go with that situation and suddenly feels you want to do a bit slower, a bit faster, or whatever, because that's the mood, or that's how the orchestra feels, or that's how the that's how the audience feels that they want it, or the venue feels how it needs to be, then you, you need to make those decisions. So it'd be interesting if you went, you know, if you did a sort of a comparative study and you took some you know really good conductor like a Simon Rattle and went through all their performances of a certain piece over the years you know maybe 30 years and all the recordings and all live performances and you match them up Mm. and could you see you know whether it was exactly the same or how much variation there was in the tempo from start to finish or even in a few sections of a few bars there was a classic case of um, a big contretemps between Leonard Bernstein and Glenn Gould when they were doing the Brahms Piano Concerto and he wanted it really slow. Bernstein wanted it much faster. And I wrote about this too. It was interesting because Bernstein went out and made a disclaimer. He basically said, you know, I I, uh, I, I completely don't agree with this piece at all, the way it's being done. But having said that, I have great respect for Mr Gould. <laughs> and it was like, God, he's totally distancing himself from the piece. He thinks it's crap. But he, he, he said, I, I didn't want to." Uh, Take myself away from the performances. I think it's important to be challenged. He said, but the only the last time I was as challenged as this by a performer was the last time I worked with Mr. Gould. You know. So, but he he basically said, you're over there doing your stuff. I'm doing my stuff. I take no responsibility. Well, guess what? At the end of the performance, the audience went wild. So, what does Bernstein do? Does he take? Should he take claim for that? Well, now, no. I mean, it's a bit like egg on the face. Like, oh, should have just shut up. Yeah. He could have said we're in for something interesting today, and maybe a performance that you don't wouldn't normally hear and tempia that you wouldn't normally hear, but I believe this is a fascinating we should do it. But he just couldn't stop himself from saying, I don't think don't think it's my fault. It's all about him, you know. Yeah. And Gould apparently was backstage laughing his head off, thinking, This is hilarious, it's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but then a year after that he stopped giving live performances because he hated having to work with other people and he wanted to get it perfect and he wanted to do it his way, so he just wanted to sit in the studio and record and do his own thing he didn't want to have to bow to leonard bernstein's impression of how that piece should be played funnily enough i went i did the same sort of comparative thing found that performance and lined it up on you know logic audio and then lined up another other different performances it's the whole thing's only got about two minutes in it maybe three minutes over most of the performances the opening is very slow much slower but after that it gets pretty much into the same as you hear most of the time so He should have just said, oh, you know, like the opening was a bit slow. That's all it was. Not like a complete dissing of everything the Gould stood for whilst backhandedly trying to compliment him. So, you know, I've never really done that on a stage. I've only said once, like, we're not quite sure if this is going to work and, um, you know, there may be some slight turbulence, so keep your (laughs) seatbelts (laughs) fast. But I wouldn't say you know, the person I'm working with, I think, is an idiot. <laughs> it's just awful.
1: We haven't needed to until uh, this program today. Thank you very much for talking <laughs> to us today, still don't, still don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, babe. This has been Ramble City, a podcast of conversations with interesting people musing on art, life and their careers. Created and produced by Old Fashioned Media. To hear more and discover additional material from today's episode, visit OFM.com.